few weeks ago when John preached, um, Chip had a, a full week but was back for that Sunday and ended up sitting in the congregation and I think he made a few people nervous sitting on his, his pew. He said he teased with them and leaned over and said, I'm watching what you put in the offering plate. Uh, and we joked at staff meeting that uh, it was kind of like an episode of Undercover Boss. So I don't know if he made it back this morning. I don't see him, but if he, if he joins your, your pew, don't get nervous. Um, you're stuck with me this morning. You can turn to First Thessalonians is where we'll be looking in, in the Bible. First Thessalonians chapter 1. My bride asked me a few days ago what I'd be preaching on, and I didn't give it a whole lot of thought, but just kind of mentioned, well, I'm, I'm preaching on what it takes to change the world. And she said, well, that's a little ambitious, don't you think? But that's what this passage is about. And the more I've studied it um, and looked at and, and read the context, um, the more I've thought about what, what does that mean? I mean, we, we all have life circumstances and situations, encounters in our lives that help shape us or form us and in some way or another help change parts of our world, help maybe even sometimes flip our world upside down in some ways. Um, we were gathering for, for Thanksgiving and the night before Thanksgiving, we were sitting around our living room, and all the family was there. And my dad and his brother were reminiscing about their military days, of all the things that, that took place when they went to basic training, and all the stories. And it was just—it was really neat for us to listen to and learn. But just to think about what what things took place to help shape them and make them into the the men that they are. And as they were talking, my cousin—they got done, and, and my cousin said, "I don't want to try to outdo what they just—the stories they just told, but." She said, my husband and I are pregnant. And so then we celebrated that story, that life-changing uh, news. Of, and just got me thinking in light of this passage, there are, there are a lot of things that go on on a regular basis that do, in some way or another, turn our world upside down and cause uh, lasting change. But the Bible says that there's one thing that transcends all of those Normal or usual life experiences, no matter how life-changing those are, there's one thing that surpasses them all, and that is coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The transforming power of the gospel, what it should do in and through us, um, is described in Scripture as turning the world upside down. And I, I found that when I was studying this passage. I was looking at, at 1 Thessalonians 1, and I said, well, let me flip back to Acts and see what was going on in the life of that church when this letter was written. And these are the words that I saw. I'll read them for you, and then we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 1. It says this in Acts. Now, when they passed through, this is talking about Paul and Silas. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in. As was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, 
These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. That's the circumstances that were taking place when looking back, Paul writes this letter. The world was being turned upside down. And we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that it was doing the same for the Thessalonians. Look just for a few minutes, uh, or just a few seconds actually, at, at, starting in verse 4, and then we'll go back and spend most of our time on verses 2 and 3. But look what was going on in the lives of the Thessalonian church. Verse 4, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These men who had been out turning the world upside down come to Thessalonica, they share the gospel, and these Thessalonians receive it. And what happens? Their lives get turned upside down. Um, it says that, Paul, Paul says that no matter where Silas and I go, we're, we start to tell them about you, and people start telling us about you. The word is spread about what's going on in this church. Um, all these things that are happening, that the world is being turned upside down through you as the gospel grabs root and, um, and has this effect on you. So, if you're like me, you read that in Acts, and you see, man, the gospel, turning the world upside down. Then you read this in Thessalonians, and you read, man, it's, it's doing it for them too. These, these guys come with the gospel, and now the report is just spreading everywhere. People, people are coming to Paul and Silas who are supposed to be carrying the report, and they're telling them, we've already heard. We know what the gospel's doing in their lives. You hear of that, and you can't help but ask the question, man, is it, is it doing that in my life? Is it doing that in the life of our church? Is the gospel taking such root in us as individuals or as a body of believers that people hear of it in other places? And before we can share what God's doing, they say, listen, we already heard. We know God is at work. He is turning the world upside down because the gospel is having such an effect on you as an individual or on you as a body of believers. And then I start asking, well, if not, for me personally at least, then why? What, what did they get that I'm missing? Or how, how are they applying the truth that maybe I'm not applying the truth? And so I, I went back and I looked and I looked and I found it just staring at me in verses 2 and 3. So let's look at that for the remainder of our time. This is the answer. How do you change the world? How do you see the gospel turn the world upside down? It's right here in verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers 
remembering before our God and Father three things. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those three things. Paul says if you have those three things, the gospel will turn the world upside down. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's spend some time looking at those three. First of all, faith. Work of faith. This is what Christian faith is. Christian faith is is a warm, personal trust in a living Savior who's turning the world upside down. A warm, personal trust in a living Savior that is turning the world upside down. Forget any notion of faith as some sort of a blind leap of some, on some, based on some sort of abstract, abstract truth. Biblical faith is, is warm. It's personal. It's trust in, in, a, in a relationship with a living Savior. A Savior who happens to be about the work of turning the world upside down. And if you have that kind of warm, personal trust in that living Savior, then it cannot help but change each and every area of our lives and issue forth work of many kinds. I think the, the reason the world isn't being turned upside down by many of our faith is because we've, we've taken the God of, of our faith and we've, we've boiled him down to something more manageable. The, the God of the Bible is too, too wild. He's, too, he's doing too many unbelievable things, too many things that are hard to manage. So we take him and we make him maybe into one of two gods. One, one I've, I've termed the algebra God. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you were math majors and, and, and use it in your, in your careers. If so, then forgive me. But for most of us, um, algebra, was, algebra, algebra and maybe even calculus were things in our school days that we had to just kind of get through. We all had to take them. They were kind of complicated, but if we worked hard enough and got enough tutoring, we could, we could make enough to pass and get through. But we knew deep down that this was probably not going to influence our life a whole lot on a day-to-day basis. That's how we treat God, isn't it? Sometimes that he's something that we grew up with. We grew up learning about going to church. It was complicated, but we spent some time in Sunday school and some different things learning more about him. We kind of got, okay, I kind of get what God is, but deep down... We never really thought that, that he would have an impact on us on a day-to-day basis. Or maybe some of us have what I call the Hallmark Hall of Fame God. Seen those movies on TV, the Hallmark Hall of Fame movies? They're very sentimental. Um, they've got this ending. You know it's, 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 there's, a, there's struggle going on, but you know in the ending it's all going to turn out right and there's going to be a happy ending. You watch it so that you can get some warm fuzzies and, and go about encouraged um, for, the, for the remainder of the year. That's, that's how we treat God sometimes. We know He's there. We know He's waiting on us. And we know if we go to Him, we'll get a measure of encouragement. And if, if nothing else, we'll get a, some sort of a pat on the back saying, hey, listen, it's going to be all right. And, and, and those things are okay. There's truth in each one of those. But what happens, the works that issue forth from those kind of from faith in, in that kind of a God are works that are, that are neat. 
the works that issue forth from, from that kind of a God are, are clean haircuts and, and no weird piercings or knowing not to talk during a sermon or somebody said, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Uh, those things that are neat and tidy that, that um, keep us kind of squeaky clean. And again, those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. But the God of the Bible is about so much more than just those things. He's a God that's turning the world upside down. See, it isn't necessarily the, the, the size of our faith, but the size of the object of our faith that causes us to make an impact. The Bible says you can have just a little faith, faith like a mustard seed, in the huge God of the Bible, and you'll see amazing things happen in your lives. Um, preacher in the West named Francis Chan has a little story that he tells. Um, called It's a children's story. It's called the, um, I think it's called the Little Red Tractor. And, the, and something about the Little Red Tractor. It basically goes like this. In a village far, far away, there was a little red tractor. And the, the villagers loved their little red tractor. They would gather on a regular basis and come crank up the tractor and see the smoke and hear the loud noise it make. And they'd all celebrate their little red tractor that they loved so much. Three months out of the year, they would get together and all get behind that little red tractor and push with all their might. And the little red tractor would, would make inch by inch progress until a little plot, little garden plot was plowed. And after three months of hard labor, they'd have that little garden plot plowed. They'd plant seeds. The rains would come. The sun would come up. And in the harvest season, they would go to that garden and they'd take of that fruit of that little plot of garden that they plowed with their little red tractor. And it was just enough every year to feed their village. Well, one night, Farmer Dave was looking through his attic, and he found the, user's, the owner's manual for the little red tractor. And he started reading about it, and he realized, hey, this little red tractor is made to do a lot more than what we're doing with it. It's made to run on its own. It's made to plow not just one little garden plot, but entire fields so that the produce is, is bountiful. And so he started telling the townspeople about it. They didn't believe him. It sounded too big. It sounded like there's too much that, that, that couldn't, it couldn't possibly be true. Well, he kept believing in it, and he kept actually working on the tractor to get it working properly. Until one night he finished, and he was so excited that he finished that he hopped on it that night and not just plowed one little garden plot, but he plowed entire fields all over the village. And when the villagers woke up the next morning, they walked out and they looked out, and they saw all these fields planted, and they were amazed. They couldn't believe what God had done. This was, this was a miracle. And then they saw Farmer Dave sitting on the red tractor. You see the point of it? Of the little children's story? That's how we live much of our lives, is faith in a little manageable small God, not expecting Him to do anything too great in our lives. Get a little comfort. Uh, get a little something that's, that, that's nice intellectually. It makes sense and it, it helps me get through a part of my life. And then you read the Thessalonians, and they come into contact with a God that is huge, that is turning the world upside down. And they start to uh, agree and apply that gospel to their lives, and they see it do the same thing in them. The Thessalonian church had a short but action-filled history. They had believed in the Jesus that Paul had proclaimed to them, and immediately persecution broke out. They were dragged from their houses by this riotous mob, falsely accused. Their money was taken from them before being sent home. For them, no ideology, no trust in an abstract truth 
was going to hold up in the long run in this kind of environment. No trust in a God who just gives some sort of an empty, don't worry, it's going to be all right, was going to hold up and would be enough for them. What would? A warm, personal trust in a living Savior who knows you better than anyone else in the world and has proven over and over His love for you and is with you in the midst of all that comes in your life as He's at work turning the world upside down and using you to be a part of that. The good works that issue from this kind of a faith are things that are hard to control and they're messy. They're things like feeding the hungry. They're things like in this passage turning from, from idols to serve a living and true God, which would have meant um, huge, huge things for them and their community. It meant, it would issue for works like seeking justice for the oppressed. Micah 6 8 says it this way What do you require of us, God? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We do a decent job a lot of times as the church trying to, to, to walk humbly with God, but then to then take a step further and to start to love mercy. And then to take a step even further and to, to, to do justice, that's when it starts to get hard. That's when it starts to get messy. That's when we have to step out and trust a God that's bigger than the gods that we usually uh, make and trust. Paul says, you want to change the world? You've got to have faith in the God in the Bible that's changing the world, that's turning the world upside down. Step out and receive in faith the things that He promises, which are much bigger than what we usually trust. Secondly, a labor of love. You want to change the world? You've got to have this labor of love that Paul talks about here. Paul's term is a strong one. And he means that out of love, the Thessalonians have labored to the point of exhaustion, of weariness. The word expresses the cost of their love. And with or without visible success, this kind of love gives itself unstintingly. About eight years ago, I, uh, I fell head over heels in love with Annette Fortney. And she was a worthy object of my affection. And I knew that I had to make her mine. And so um, I, we dated for a few months, and then I laid the plans for the proposal. Um, I had a friend that worked at a certain school in town that will be left unnamed, but that many of your kids go to and is associated with this church. And they, they let me in after hours into their auditorium. And so we had this big plan. We, we said, you know what? One of my favorite sing- singer-songwriters is a guy named David Wilcox. We'll tell Annette that David Wilcox is going to do a, a concert in this auditorium. We'll set it up. We'll, we'll say that, you know, this friend has got to go set up early, so we'll go over early to set up and... So it was just me and a few of my friends and Annette, and, and we, we go in, and uh, I say, well, I've got to go help a friend sit up backstage. Uh, one of my, the, the girls in the group uh, came and took Annette and sat her down in the middle of the auditorium, and then they left her there. They made up some lie, and they, they left her there in the middle of the auditorium. And then who comes out from behind the stage but Eric with his guitar, and I sit down and I start playing some songs for her. And she said afterwards, she said, I, I thought, hey, David Wilcox is going to come out. He better hurry up and quit playing around up there, but... A few songs into the night, she realized, hey, this is not a David Wilcox concert. There's something going on here. Um, and I never told her that I loved her. And so the last song that I played, the, the last words of the song were, I love you. And I uh, called her down front, got on the knee, proposed. And she said, yes. 
Uh, I saw a worthy, worthy object of my affection, and I knew I had to make her mine. That is, is what the Greeks called eros love. And it's good. There's nothing wrong in and of itself. Actually, we're called to that as believers. The Bible says things like um, the gospel is something that's a pearl of great price. Go sell all you have to make it your own. So eros love is, is good in and of itself. But as good as it is, that's not the, the love, the kind of love that changes the world. The word love in this passage is it's not eros love, it's agape love. And if you know anything of, of Greek, the Greek language, agape love was the, that was the term the Christians picked up and used for the way God loves us. God loves us not because we're worthy, not because of the potential we have, not because we desire to make, He desires to make us His possession because we're so good. He loves us knowing full well our unworthiness. He loves us without thought of advantage, for there's nothing we can bring to the one who's made all things. He loves us because He's love. He continually gives Himself in a love which is for blessing others, not for the enrichment of Himself. And this kind of love costs. It doesn't exist only in words, but it's active. We, we read of it in the assurance of pardon that, that Jesus Christ came not to, not to save those that are worthy, but he came while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebels. Christ died for us. Ultimately, we see in the cross most clearly the love of a pure and holy God for sinners. That is, that is agape love. That's the kind of love that changes things. It doesn't leave us alone. It forces us to make a decision to either yield and be transformed by it or, or to reject it. And by yielding to it, we're made new. And we begin to see others in some, some measure as God sees us. And to love them not for any worthiness they have, but even despite their unworthiness. Because we're loving now um, because we've been loved. We're loving not to change them, but because we've been changed. Listen, if you have faith in the God of the Bible that's radical faith that, that, that issues forth the kind of works that we just talked about. If you have love that, that labors like Paul is talking about here that gives of yourself without, without expecting anything in return then you're going to need the third thing that he mentions and that's hope. Steadfast hope. The, 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 the language here means not some sort of passive resi resignation, but an act of constancy in the face of difficulties. One author said it this way, this kind of hope is, is the spirit which can bear things with a blazing hope. I love that. It can go through hard things with a blazing hope. It's the hope that is, is, is a solid certainty. It's, it's in the future coming of Jesus, but it's completely certain that he's coming to restore all things. You remember taking vacation or long trips as a child? We, we used to always go on a family vacation in the summertime to Panama City Beach. I remember it was Laguna Beach, uh, no, uh, Laguna Beach Resort or something like that. And we would go, and it was something we looked forward to every year. It was white sand. It was big waves. It was a swimming pool. It was an amusement park called Miracle Strip. It was go-karts. It was putt-putt. And on top of it all, usually the week that we went was my birthday week. And so I knew I was going to have Mima's chocolate pound cake. 
uh, to celebrate that week as well. I knew what was waiting on me at the end of the journey because I tasted it before. But let me tell you, as a kid on those kind of journeys, it is labor to wait. It is, it is labor to, to uh, be patient. How, do you, how did I find endurance? How did you find endurance on those kind of trips? You found it in two ways. Same ways I did. One is landmarks. You know, you get used to the trip. You get used to seeing the certain office buildings or city squares or certain things. And especially when you get close, you see the palm trees and you start to get excited. So the landmarks. And then secondly, anticipating what was coming. What would you do as you drove to the beach? We would talk about what happened last year. Man, when I go to Miracle Strip, I can't wait to ride this ride, the log flume. Or I can't wait to, to play putt-putt. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you this year. We would talk about what was waiting on us and look expectantly to what was coming. Paul spends a lot of time in First and Second Thessalonians talking about what's coming. What it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. And here are a few things that he says. He says that those Christians who have died are, are with Jesus right now. And that when Jesus returns, they'll come with him. Their new bodies will be raised and transformed into new glorious bodies. That we who are alive will be transformed also. And, and just, like, just like what used to happen when a conquering king was coming into the city, we'll go out and meet that conquering king. We'll, we'll be caught up with him in the air, and then we'll celebrate all the way back down to earth as he comes to set up his kingdom in full. It says Jesus, with his cleansing fire of justice, will burn away all wickedness and set right all wrongs and punish those who didn't respond to the gospel, who didn't embrace him. And that those who do know Jesus and haven't embraced the gospel will glorify Jesus and marvel at him as we are glorified and made new and spend eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Now some of, some of you, when you hear me say things like that, your heart beats a little bit faster. It, it kind of leaps in your, in your chest. Others of you hear that and you think, well that sounds neat, but I don't see how that affects me today. And there's a reason for your response. If you're anything like me, if I'm working on a project, that's what consumes me. Whether it's a, a yard work, whether it's uh, building something. Um, I used to put together models as a kid, and, and, and it would consume me until I was finished with that model. And then when it was complete, I could celebrate. Here's what I mean. If you've been building things on earth where moth and rust destroy and you hear the things of heaven that are coming, then eh, they might affect you. It might sound interesting. But if you've been about laboring to build the kingdom of God that He's about, then when you hear what it's going to be like when it's brought to completion, man, your ears perk up. You want to know that what you're working for, how it's going to look when it's completed. And that gets you excited. The Thessalonians wanted to know. They had been having this, this huge work based off this huge faith in this huge God. They'd been laboring, growing weary, loving people like Jesus called them to love. They were building the kingdom. They were seeing God do amazing things and turn their world upside down. And so they said, Paul, tell us more about what it's going to be like when he comes because we want that steadfast hope, looking forward to what it's going to be like when it's completed. Tell us more, Paul, tell us more. And their hearts leapt as they heard the truths that Paul told them. You want to change the world? You need 
a faith in a big God, a warm personal trust in a living Savior that's turning the world upside down. You need to be transformed by His love and then seek about loving others, not that are worthy, but those that are, that are unworthy, doing the, the work of, of mercy and justice. And then you need to couple that with, with hope, with steadfastness of hope, looking forward to what it's going to be like when He comes back to get you through, to encourage your heart to continue to do these things. Here's the message this morning. Individual or even church. You can see the world turned upside down. God is the one who does it. That's what He's promised that He's about. He's building His kingdom. Have faith in that God. Love Labor to love like he loves. And then have hope, steadfastness of hope, certain hope that he's coming again. This is a great time of year to do it because it's Advent time, to anticipate the coming of Jesus. Yes, celebrate that he's come once, but look forward to his coming again. Let's pray that he, as he does these things in us, we will see our world turned upside down. Let's pray together. God, would you do that? We know that it's you that does it. But thank you that you use us, that you call us to be a part. You give us significance. We pray that we would labor out of love, that we would have huge faith that issues forth great works, and that we would have steadfastness of hope as we look to and trust in Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me and let's sing our song of response in Christ alone.